Thank you very much, Commissioner. I would just like to say that I was really just a spoke in the wheel of the success that we had some 25 years ago. And personally want to say thank you to a great captain, a guy who was the leader of our ball club and who really set the pace in many, many areas. Pee-wee, thanks so much for being here today. I would like to also say that I would be a real, real pleasure if Mr. Ricky could have been here with us today, but to the members of the family, my entire love and gratitude for the things that he's done over the years. And I also want to say how pleased I am that my family can be here this afternoon and to thank baseball for the tremendous uh, opportunities that it has presented to me and also for this thrilling afternoon. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. Thank you very much. one more time set, and here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now, and the fastball swung on, it's a deep center field, Bernie Williams goes back, and it is, get out the line, Brent, and the mustard this time, grab off, it is a grand salami, and the Mariners lead it, 10 to 6, I don't believe it, From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Polly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson. From the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back into Captain Kurt chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. What's juicy, you freaky seamheads? Want to welcome you back to another week of Backwards K-Pod, where we take an educational biographical account of the moments and the personalities that have been woven into the fabric of baseball and American history. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake the Snake Robinson. How you doing? Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, and... Even Alexa got me on her Rolodex, baby. So, look, I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. Seek, and you shall find. And, look, I'm going to go old-school, gorilla-style pod this week as my boy Big Tex. He's out dominating some golf tournament today. He came, like, two feet away from winning a hot pink Hummer. I mean, you know, this dude is a stud. I kind of miss him. The studio's empty without him. So, uh, go ahead. Do your thing, Big Tex. Big fella. The Sasquatch of Pods. I love that dude. He'll be back next week. And uh, I will be gratefully waiting for you right here. But uh, look, it's great to have you, the audience, with me again this week. As our time travel journey through baseball history continues. And this is a huge one today. So I'm not going to do a lot of opening jimmy jabber this week. If you've been around for the past year, you probably know. Uh, I'm not a two-parter guy. I don't like breaking down shows. I don't like splitting them up into parts. I don't like any episodic programming that does that. And I really do not like going far over an hour. Although, I do often break that rule, right? And I'll probably break it this week, I'm sure. I'm just letting the audience know from the rip. It's veritably impossible to cover Jackie Robinson's life in five hours, let alone one. So, my goal here today is to give you a good enough dose to where if you need to know more about this American patriot, you'll be motivated to look him up on your own. But look, this week, I'm all about business. I'm like Nolan Ryan. Give me the ball. Get out of my way. It's time to go to work. 
Uh, I'll never charge you for the content here. No Patreon. No pay-to-play crowdsourcing. I'm just going to keep it uh, thorough. Every Tuesday, I'm going to bring you that free baseball smoke. And I done told you, I'm on Ryan Express today. I don't care about anything. I'm ready to get the show rolling. So, I see the catcher. He's ready to come down. The infield is starting to throw that rock around. That's time to load up this beast right here. And I'm going to call all aboard. And let's get this runaway freight train back on track this week as we'll be taking a deep dive into the life and times of the great Jackie Robinson. And, okay, truth be told, I'm a little more nervous than I usually am before a show because I hold Jackie in such high reverence. And I want my account on his life to be both authentic and credible. He is a force in not only baseball history, but he truly is the beginning of the civil rights movement in America. And that would change the course of the country's history forever. When Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was but an uh, you know, unknown junior at Morehouse College. The United States Army had yet to be integrated. It was seven years before Brown versus Board of Education would be argued before the Supreme Court. Rosa Parks had yet to give up her seat on the bus yet, something that Jackie had done more than a decade before Rosa Parks. And that resulted in his court-martial in Fort Hood, Texas. Oh, by the way, he won that. But look, uh, let's stick a pin in that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. In later years, Dr. King once said of Jackie that he was a sit-inner before there were sit-ins. And he was a freedom rider before there were freedom rides. The history of black America and our mindset has usually come down to the simple fact that really... We just want two things in our existence in this country. We want the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence to mean the same for us as it does for everybody else. You know, with all those beautiful words and promises of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And we want a seat at the table and a voice at the table of America. Yeah, somehow, sometimes I get the feeling that when the Declaration of Independence was being written, the Founding Fathers, they sat around this table reading a line that says, All men are created equal with unalienable, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I just imagine that after a long pause of, you know, everybody huddled around this table reading that, you know, Je- uh, Jefferson looks at Franklin Adams, Hancock, Washington, you know, they, they got these confused looks on their faces. And Jefferson says, you guys know what I mean. And then the slave owners all laugh. But I digress. Jackie just knew. Once he smashed that color line and got his chance, he could obliterate all these false narratives of convention. First, you prove you can play. You prove that you belong. Then once you prove that you belong... You can go after it all. And then you start dealing with the writers on your terms, not on theirs. And then you fight to make sure the hotels become integrated, threatening these places by going after their bottom line, the cash. Now think about that, folks. No player in MLB up until that time bore that type of weight on their shoulders. Most people would have probably crumbled under the weight of Representing a whole race of people who are considered second-class citizens by the law of the land. And Jackie was able to take all that weight, overcome it, become respected, then loved. And instead of calling it a day as a baseball player, he took all that love and respect he garnered. And he challenged the whole country to be better. This ain't a politician, not a preacher, not a militant race peddler, not a reality TV show star, a baseball player. And if you ask me, I don't like to insert myself into, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be the, the historian right here. But to me, Jackie Robinson is probably the most significant baseball player in the history of the game. Now, some would say Ruth and 
I really wouldn't have a problem with that line of thinking. But I would say this in terms of his impact on the national pastime. Babe Ruth did indeed forever change the way the game is played. That's undeniable. But Jackie changed the way Americans thought. And it ushered in the era of the true American superpower because of it. We were a power. But once we came together with the races and threw all the segregation bullshit away, we became a superpower. And Jackie, he attacked the civil rights agenda the same way he attacked baseball. He was fearless. He came to be heard. He came to win. And he was always ready to shove a bat up your ass if you dare challenge him. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, born January 31st, 1919. So folks, the release date of the show is January 31st, 2023. Making today his 104th birthday. And side note, I gotta say this. I'm so honored to have this platform and to have you find Seamheads in my army and to have a voice today for Jackie. I am completely honored. And I don't take it lightly. Happy birthday, Jackie. As a fellow Robinson, I've always felt linked to you. Jackie was the youngest of five children, four boys and a girl. And their parents were impoverished sharecroppers who were children to freed slaves after the Civil War. The father, Jay Robinson, he deserted the family soon after the birth of Jack. His wife, Molly Robinson, a devoutly religious woman, would pick up the pieces and move the struggling family to Pasadena, California by rail when Jack was 14 months old. She worked as, uh, you know, like this domestic caregiver and maid and to support her children and often... She would feed them the leftovers from the families that she worked for. She was a strong woman who would go without to ensure her children's survival. With the help of welfare, Molly secured a home in predominantly white Pasadena, California, where the neighbors formed a petition for their removal. And a few of them were so upset that they even offered to buy the house outright. Well, Molly refused, and she was never going to go back to being a sharecropper in Georgia. She liked her home. She liked the school, her kids' future. These white people are just going to have to get over it. And the family was often harassed because of it. The, the property would get vandalized, and the Robinson boys, you know, they grew up knowing how to defend themselves and one another if the situation arose. And Jackie himself, he was involved in his share of fisticuffs with white boys in the hood, as well as uh, dealings with these racist cops who had stereotyped him as a criminal. At an early age, Jackie was known as quite the athlete. But he was not the best athlete of the Robinson boys. When they were young, Jackie looked up to his older brother, Mac. He idolized him, and he was inspired to compete because of Mac. Jackie had this almost superhero view of his big brother. He wanted to be just like him. Well, in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany, in front of Adolf Hitler and his growing Nazi power, fueled on by this white nationalist teaching of the so-called superior Aryan race, Mac Robinson finished second in the 200-meter dash to the great Jesse Owens. And this is a race that Hitler, upon seeing no way possible for Germany's runner uh, Albert Steinmetz to keep it close to the two Americans, he turned his back to the race as if he didn't care. And, you know, I, I, I think about Bill Burr here, because Bill Burr's got this great bit where he talks about, you know, just Hitler and his boys were talking mad shit on the car to the stadium, and uh, Jesse Owens and Mac Robinson here, they zipped those lips up real quick. And you got to go home in the car with an even more pissed off Adolf Hitler, right? I mean, that's not good times. But I digress. 
Yeah, Mac, Robinson, Jesse Owens, they pissed all over Hitler's theories and everything he held sacred in his heart. They were the two fastest men in the world. And I have a theory that during the 10 Olympics, Hitler probably at that moment began looking for the Max Schmeling. His area, you know, his Aryan super athletes, they were no match in track and field for these grandchildren of former slaves. But, you know, maybe pugilism uh, requires more thought, making, you know, them more vulnerable. Well, I didn't end well for him either. But on this day, it was a total embarrassment to the Third Reich philosophy. So much so that Hitler bounced shortly thereafter. Back home in California, Jackie was so proud of his hero, his big brother. He bragged about it to everyone he knew. He couldn't believe he was living with an American hero, a silver medalist in the 200-meter dash. His brother was somebody that gave Hitler the finger and showed him that his theories had serious flaws. As Germany had no answers for the black American athletes in the 1930 Olympics. Unfortunately, when Matt came back, there were no parades. No welcoming at the airport, no sponsorships, no media. Not even a respectable job was awaiting him. Nope. It was back to second class citizenship for the Olympic silver medalist. He eventually found a job working for the uh, city of Pasadena as a janitor. And he lost that position soon thereafter. Uh, the Jim Crow rules, they prevailed in Pasadena as well back then. The blacks were only permitted to use the city pool once a week. When a judge ordered that all city pools were to give black citizens access to city pools any day of the week, while these salty pool powers that be, they responded by firing the black employees like Mac Robinson. And after watching this whole debacle unfold from the sidelines, Jackie was horrified and he was saddened by the treatment of his hero. And he swore that he would never allow that to happen to him. Jackie was a gold-driven kid at an early age. And it came from following his brother. Somehow he knew he was meant for something extraordinary in life. In today's vernacular... Jackie knew his worth, even as a kid. He knew that he was going to be an athlete. And he knew he wasn't never going to mop anyone's fucking floors. At Mere Technical High School, Pasadena Junior College, he was a beast in football, baseball, track and field, basketball. He was offered scholarships to a whole litany of colleges, but he finally accepted the offer from UCLA to be close to his mom and home. And Robinson gained national prominence at UCLA when he became the first athlete in Bruins history to letter in four sports. And he was actually called the Jim Thorpe of his race because of his multi-sports skill set. In football, he shared the same backfield with Kenny Washington, one of the first black NFL pioneer running backs. Jackie averaged over 11 yards per carry for UCLA in his junior year. Leading Sports Weekly to call him the greatest ball carrier on the gridiron today. On the hardwood, UCLA parquet, uh, Jackie was the highest scoring player on the team during his junior, uh, junior and senior seasons. And that came uh, with him playing point guard. In track, he was an Olympic hopeful. But he didn't fulfill those goals because World War II was breaking out in Europe. But he was already the holder of the junior college long jump record and he captured the NCAA long jump title. So, it was pretty fair to complain. He he was going to go to the Olympics for sure in 1940. In college... Besides lettering those four sports, check this out. He also won swimming championships. He went to the semifinals for the Negro Tennis Championships. And, of course, he played baseball, even though baseball was probably his weakest sport. But even 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 through that, he was voted MVP in SoCal Junior College Baseball. So, he was elite. I mean... Actually, when you think about it, he was world class. He, he he was ready to go on to the Olympics. He's a true 
freaking athlete. However, financial problems at home, they would halt Jackie's UCLA career during his senior year, just a few credits short of graduation. He took on a job as a coach for the National Youth Administration, and he played some semi-pro football for the Los Angeles Bulldogs in the fall of 1941. The Honolulu Bears, they offer him a chance to play football, and he accepts. And you have to understand that by this time, Jackie's a draw. Uh... He's the gate, you know, he's the he's the attraction. He's already a hero in the black community. And the Bears, they promote him with top billing, calling him the All-American halfback. Upon his return to California, the Empire of Japan, sneak attacks Pearl Harbor, and Jackie would be drafted in the U.S. Uh, Army in 1942. After that, they stationed him to Fort Riley, Kansas. Now, originally, Jackie was denied entrance into officer candidate school, even though he had a college background. And never wanted to back down from a fight against unfairness and prejudice. He appealed the decision. And with the help of boxing great Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber, the Brown Bomber, who was also serving as an officer on the base, uh, he intervened on Jackie's behalf. The, the, the two of them managed to get the t- decision reversed. And their bond from there on out was unbreakable for the rest of their lives. But Jackie was infuriated that he wasn't allowed to play on the segregated camp baseball team. It angered him so much. He absolutely refused to play on the football team. Even when his superiors tried to pressure him into playing. After OCS... Robinson was appointed morale officer for the black troops at Fort Riley. And he would wind up winning his men many concessions that predictably angered a few of the higher ranked officers in his command. He was then reassigned to Fort Hood, Texas soon thereafter. And the primal and defiant Jackie would find controversy once again. On July 1st, 1944, while sitting and speaking to a white woman on an army bus... Jackie would defy a bus driver's order to, quote, move to the back of the bus where the coloreds belong. Now, eventually the MPs and the base provost marshal show up. After the driver had stopped the bus, he refused to continue on until Jackie knew his place. Uh, These dudes, they agreed with the driver. You know, obviously this boy doesn't understand how it's done here in uh, Jim Crow, Texas. And under vehement protest, they arrested Robinson and subjected him to a court-martial. Now, facing this dishonorable discharge stain on his military record, Jackie prevailed at the hearing. Robinson had beaten Jim Crow law in Texas by refusing to give up a seat on a bus. Eleven years before Rosa Parks would be arrested in Montgomery, Alabama, for refusing to yield her seat. By this time, the army, you know, they just had enough of the controversial young black lieutenant and they quickly, quickly, quietly shuffled him out with an honorable discharge. And the irony of all this, you know, Jackie's difficulty with white authority, it actually caught the eye of the super conservative and God-fearing Branch Rickey who was admiring Jackie from afar. And he had him at the top of his list for candidates to break the color line. Mr. Ricky, of course, at this time, the GM, part owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he's got scouts scouting the Negro Leagues to find that guy to break the unwritten but diligently enforced gentleman's agreement that banned blacks from participating in the majors. And I did a whole show on, on the Mahatma, Branch Rickey. And many of you know my feelings about him. I, I hold him in high regard as a human being of enlightenment. And also, I believe without question, he's the greatest GM in the history of Major League Baseball. Bar fucking none. He's the standard. So, this is a big show with a lot of ground to cover. I, I'm not going to go too in-depth with their complex relation and the signing and all that. I covered that pretty thoroughly 
in the Brad Tricky Show, the Mahatma. And you can find that anywhere you listen to your shows on all platforms or going over to diamondsnakejake.pobby.com to hear the Mahatma, the Branch Ricky Show. Or, you know, really any of the other shows that are in my uh, expanding vaults of archives. So, after Jackie's discharge, he joined the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American Leagues for the 1945 season. The Monarchs one of the most successful and prosperous teams in the league. Even they had been hit by the uh, manpower demands of World War II. But they still had draws in Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, Hilton Smith, Satchel Page, And Jackie wound up playing shortstop. He hit well over 300. He displayed power and his speed. But he really didn't like a lot of things about the Negro Leagues. He wasn't long for that league. He once protested to his manager that Satchel was performing a minstrel show out on the mound to the white audience. And this isn't what he signed up for. Jackie was there to play baseball. To which his manager snapped back, his minstrel show is what brought these people here, and that's what's paying your salary, Robinson. No one came here to see goddamn Jack Robinson. He hated the nomadic travel. Sometimes playing three games in a day, hundreds of miles apart. But the thing that Jackie hated the most, the one thing he couldn't stand or respect, were the Jim Crow laws the Monarchs encountered on the road and how the club rarely ever pushed back. And one thing we know about Jackie, he gonna push back. Oh, you ain't gonna let us use your bathrooms, Mr. Gas Station Attendant? Then you just lost a whole lot of money filling this uh, bus up with your gas. We'll take our business somewhere else. And that was Jackie's way. You, you would think that the team would rally around Jack when he stood his ground with these businesses. But honestly, many of these players were actually put off by Jackie's aggressive pro-black stance. And some even viewed it as, you know, loudmouth Jackie grandstanding again. But that's the dude that Mr. Ricky's looking for. First and foremost... You need the talent, ambition, and hard work ethic, right? He wanted someone educated, sober, accustomed to competing with white athletes. He checked all those boxes. Jackie grew up in a racially mixed environment. He attended school with white classmates, matriculated at UCLA. He'd been an army officer in the military. He was well-spoken, confident, personable in front of crowds. He had experienced the glare of sports stardom. And quite honestly, he reveled in it. He had savvy. And extremely important to the religiously pious Mr. Ricky. Jackie didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't womanize. When Jack first uh, tells Mr. Ricky about his fiance Rachel, Branch encourages Jackie to quickly lock that shit down with a ring. Uh, you know, he would marry her on February 10th, 1946 in Los Angeles. Just four months after Jackie did the unthinkable at the time. In November of 1944, longtime baseball commissioner Kenny Saul Mountain Landis, who was always against integration and long upheld the so-called unwritten but diligently enforced handshake agreement. Gentleman agreement. Whatever. Fucking gentleman. Well, he died. Landis passing was the opening that Mr. Ricky needed to implement his plan to integrate the Dodgers with the uh, black ballplayers. On October 23rd, 1945, the Brooklyn Dodgers announced the signing of Jackie Robinson to a major league contract. Robinson had actually signed the deal a few months earlier in the, in the now legendary meeting between Robinson and Mr. Ricky that I covered in the Mahatma show. The meeting where, you know, Ricky, uh, Mr. Ricky trolls Jackie with like every ignorant insult he can think of to try to break him. And at one point, he hits a sore spot with Jackie, and Robinson had to catch himself from crossing the line physically with Mr. Ricky and ripping him apart. And Jackie says to him, well, well what do you want, Mr. Ricky? You want a player who won't fight back? You want a player who ain't tough enough to fight back? And Jackie listens with both confusion and understanding. When Mr. Ricky shoots back, no, Jack, 
I want a player strong enough not to play back. Basically, you ain't going to win if you play back. And I won't be able to defend you. So, the two agreed that for, four, for three years, Jackie would bite his tongue and remain passive in the face of the worst treatment any person has ever encountered without the option of retaliating. And Jack was a Methodist, like the staunch Mr. Ricky. So he took Robinson at his word, and he offered him a deal right on the spot. When the Robinson signing was announced, the black newspapers heralded the amazing news. Quite honestly, the stunning developments received positive narratives in national publications despite objections and slur-filled attacks from Let's just call it predictable quarters. But the Dodgers had to overcome the near-unanimous disapproval of the reigning MLB establishment. Who, quite honestly, had to be thinking to themselves, Man, I thought we had a gentleman's agreement here. What the hell is going on? And after the initial furor of Jackie begins to die down, a campaign to downplay his ability and character begins to take form in the shadows. The New York Daily News gave Jackie a Tim Tebow-like 1,001 chance of cracking the Dodgers roster. A Sporting News editorial it dismissed Robinson as a, class, as a player with classy ability and they predicted he was surely drowned in the International League because he was essentially out of his depth. Cleveland Indians pitcher Bob Feller, all of a sudden he became a PhD in anatomy. And he proclaimed that, you know, Robinson, he's got football shoulders. And he'll never be able to catch that inside pitch to save his neck. Truth be told, Robin was built like a tank. But he was hard to hit like Easy e He looked more like a fullback than an infielder. He suffered from rickets as a child, and he always walked with this pigeon-toed gait. He stood 5'11", weighed around 195 pounds. And as evidenced by his time at UCLA, while excelling in over six and seven sports, when you see his athletic ability in person next to you, it's breathtaking. But Jackie struggles with a sore arm during the Montreal Royals' 1946 spring training camp which prompts all the trolls to go on Facebook and say, I told you so. Nah, okay, okay. That didn't happen, of course, but it would have happened had Facebook been around in 1946. Yeah, some people in the media, the 1946 status quo trolls in the media, you know, they're enjoying Robinson's struggles and performing poorly. On April 18th, 1946, the Royals travel to Jersey City for the season opening opener versus the Jersey City Giants in Roosevelt Stadium. Jackie Robinson became the first acknowledged black ball player in the 20th century to play professional organized baseball. And I like to believe some black players may have made the pros before Jackie under the guise of, you know, being like a light-skinned Latino who, ironically, were allowed to play professional baseball since the 1880s if you had the proper skin tones. But there was no mistake in Robinson's background with his cool, uh, cold, dark, ebony skin. And as Red Barber said in the booth in uh, the movie 42, one of my favorite lines, Robinson is definitely a brunette. So, with the rate of his race on his shoulder... And with the writers manipulating the perspective of who and what he was as a man, as a baseball player, Jackie played angry that night. And there are a few, very few ball players I have found who actually play better when they're pissed off. That dudes like Ty Cobb, Albert Bell, Barry Bonds. And right here, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, told all his life. He wasn't good enough. You don't belong. Well, this was the beginning of Jackie putting a muzzle on the lips of all those detractors. And he put the white boys in the league and on the upper levels as well unnoticed that night. Things are about to change, boys. And to let you know how much 
It's going to change. I'm going to shove my bat up your ass as my first victim. And by all means, take it personal. Because I'm going to enjoy carving you bums up tonight. Now, I'm paraphrasing, of course. But Jackie was merciless against the Giants that night. He played like a man obsessed with vengeance. Obsessed with earning some goddamn respect by the time he's done. He started the game at second base. Batted second in lineup. After grounding out in the first inning with the uh, sold-out Roosevelt Stadium jeering and chirping at him, Jack mutters it to himself something about, you know, rolling over horse shit grounders. But he says to himself, that pitcher got lucky. He can't get it past me. He wouldn't even be a starter in the Negro Leagues. And in the third inning, Jack proves to himself that the pitcher isn't in his class when he drops three-run dong over that dude's lips. In the fifth, with the team owning a comfortable lead, Jackie displays another facet of his game besides power. Uh, he drops a perfect blunt, blunt for a hit, and then he clowns the Giants pitchers and catchers as well on the base pass, and he left the Jersey fans breathless. Now, this is what happened. After the bunt, he stole second. And, you know, it's that odd but fascinating pigeon-toed shuffle that we've seen from Robinson. Now, he's on second. The next batter grounded the third. The third baseman caught the grounder cleanly. Checked Jackie back to second. Threw over the first for the ground out. But Jackie, with his acute base running instincts and his agility, athletic ability, as well as his, uh, you know, high baseball IQ and Olympic, you know, speed, he breaks for third as the throw crosses the diamond. And the first baseman, you know, he's shocked by this uh, I'm going to call it vulgar display of speed. So he hurries the throw back to third, but the dang Robinson, he beats the throw. And now Robinson is cocky. These kids are not on my level. And the flabbergasted pitcher toes the rubber. And the right-hander is watching Robinson at third. He's dancing off the base. He's fainting Paul starts to home. And the pitcher's got to be thinking, whoa, 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 what kind of baseball is this? I mean, he must be thinking that to himself. And the pitcher stares off at Robinson with his cool confidence. He knows this guy's about to fold like a cheap suit, baby. He's not sure whether to worry about me or the batter. And again, he begins to pigeon toe dance with the poker face of determination. He bluffs. He retreats a step. He goes farther, still farther. And the pitcher... And his preoccupied confusion bucks. And Robinson scores. Now, the fans are not amused. Which is good, because Jackie ain't done. All those years of looking past him, denying him basic rights because of his color. Somebody's going to pay those receipts off in full tonight. Two innings after the bluffing the pitcher out of his cleats. He drills a sharp single to right field. Steals second base. Uh, one pitch later, and he scores on a triple by a teammate. In the eighth inning, Jackie again drops a beautiful bunt, advances from first to third on an infield hit by a teammate. That's right, you heard me, first to third on an infield single. So, Jackie is on third again, and guess what he does? He provokes the Jersey City pitcher to balk, and he scores because of the hurler's brain fart again. The next day, the headline of the Pittsburgh Courier screams, Jackie stole the show. And baseball's long-standing defense for keeping the game segregated, it hinged on basically two narrative talking points. Number one, there just aren't any black talented players that are good enough to play in the majors. That is number one. Total horseshit. And the second talking point centered on financial concerns. Many owners felt like white fans would never be willing to share the stands with black folks. And there was also some horseshit feigned concern about the financial impact this would have on the established Negro Leagues. But let's be honest, they didn't care about that. But here's the thing. Jackie Robinson emphatically dispelled those weak-ass talking points and excuses as a draw, 
and a competitor on the field. The Royals dominated the International League that year, and the turnstiles around the league were spitting out massive chunks of cash, thanks to Jackie. The Royals established a new attendance record in Montreal, and his impact reverberated on the road as well, as the stadiums were packed houses all over the league, full of baseball fans wanting to take a glimpse at history in the making. In many of these cities, the attendance almost tripled from the previous year. It's estimated that over a million people showed up to watch Jackie Robinson and the Royals play that year. And folks, that's an amazing number for minor league games in the 1940s. Jackie balled out. He finished the year with a 349 average, scored 113 runs in 124 games. Both of those stats were good enough to pace the league. His 40 stolen bases were the second highest in the league, and he led all second basemen in the league in fielding percentage. Uh, in the standings, the Royals, they bullied their way into a pennant title by 19 and a half games, and they won the Little World Series title. After the series win, the overjoyed and enthusiastic fans, they wanted to celebrate the title with their new hero, but Jackie had a play to catch. So, the last memory of that amazing 1946 season in Montreal was a group of white Canadian fans chasing Jackie for three blocks, prompting one journalist to write, it was probably the first time in history that a black man was chased by a white mob with love instead of hate on their mind. In 1947, after Jackie torched the International League, it was widely assumed that Jackie would get every opportunity to join the big club in Brooklyn. Mr. Ricky chose Havana, Cuba as the spring training site in 1947, in part to avoid Jim Crow racist attitudes in Florida. And he knew that, you know, Cuba had no silly hang-ups with black people staying at hotels or where someone ate in a fucking restaurant. Uh, his plan, you know, his plan was to relax the black ball players and get these Dodger veterans, veterans to get acclimated and used to having Jackie around. And he wanted these guys to see up close and personal the kind of asset that Jackie would be for the team and their pennant aspirations. Three other black players who had since uh, been added by the Dodger, in the Dodgers farm also joined them for that spring training. It was Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, and Roy Partlow. And Mr. Ricky, he set up a seven-game exhibition series between the Dodgers and the Negro League. Oh, I'm sorry, the Montreal Royals. And it was basically to showcase Jackie and his amazing skill set and Robinson didn't disappoint, clubbing to the tune of a 625 batting average. Oy vey! The first challenge that Jackie had to overcome was the fact that club vet Eddie Stanky was a fixture at sec- second base for the Dodgers. So, Brooklyn decided to debut Jackie as a first baseman. A most dubious position for a man who lived in the middle of a diamond his whole career. And during training camp, a mini-mutiny arose when a few of these Southerners on the team, led by uh, outfielder Dixie Walker, they drew up a team petition against having Robinson on the team. And when Mr. Ricky heard this, he almost cursed. He was so angry. He calls manager Leo DeRocher and he tells him, I need you to squash this rebellion judiciously and without mercy. And we've been on the lip many times here at BKP. And we've hit on the relationship that he had with Mr. Ricky. Their relationship goes back to the 1933 with the uh, Gas House Gang Cardinals. And Leo, through all the surliness and brazen rebellion towards Mr. Ricky's religious lifestyle, he held the Mahatma in high esteem. So, he gathers the boys and he tells them, in no uncertain terms, Jackie's coming. And if he can help the team win a pennant, which all indications say he can, he'll get every opportunity to win a spot on this team. He also appointed the dissenters. 
that Mr. Ricky wipes his ass with your petition. And if any of you don't like it, he will gladly type up your release today. Oh, and finally, boys, listen closely. He ain't the last. There's a whole bunch of them coming behind him, and they're hungry for spots. So instead of writing petitions, you better get to working on your game. Because some of you ain't going to be in this league much longer. Shortly thereafter, Jackie lost Leo's full approval and support. When Leo, the limp, was suspended by the league office for a sex scandal and associating with gamblers and other unsavory characters. And while the limp suspension drew uh, media clamor, the clever Mr. Ricky definitely took advantage of the chaos by quietly transferring Jackie to the Brooklyn roster. Contrary to predictions, Jackie's first season went smooth as he kept his word to Mr. Ricky. Um, he did turn the other cheek in the face of abuse. He received death threats in Cincinnati. The Cardinals threatened to strike until league president Ford Frick pushed back on the organization with force. And of course, that first year, his worst in-game experience came at the hands of Phillies manager Ben Chapman, who mercilessly baited Jackie with racist taunts and inflammatory bench jockeying. And again, we covered this in the Branch Ricky show. It's also a prominent part of the movie 42. Teammate Andy Stanky, who originally opposed the signing of Jackie, he was sick of hearing Chapman run his mouth, and he walked up to the Phillies manager, and he challenged him to pick on someone who can play back. And the strategy of baiting Jackie backfired horrendously on Chapman. First of all, the Phillies were embarrassed by their manager's actions, and they let him know that his behavior is unacceptable going forward in the new modern game. Many in the media supported Jackie, and it even created sympathy for him by many of his detractors. That rookie campaign by Jackie was a spectacular showing of a player unlike any other in the game. And the only thing I can equate maybe to is uh, in my lifetime is maybe Ichiro's rookie year. Uh, I've seen a lot of great rookies in my year watching this game, but Ichiro was different. He played the game unlike any of his, his peers before or since, quite honestly. And Robinson is described in this same vein whenever I do my research. He had power, athleticism, but his speed element was off the charts and unlike any other player in the major leagues at that time. In fact, I would suggest that Jackie was the first player since Ty Cobb to use his game-changing Olympic speed as a veritable weapon to change the complexion of ball games. And to take that even further, Ichiro was probably the first player since Ricky Henderson to use his game-changing speed as a dominating weapon and his arsenal. So here, let's uh let's take a look at Jackie Robinson's historical 1947 rookie season. Uh, Jackie played in 144 games that year, accumulated a 3.4 war, 7-1 playing appearances, 175 hits, 125 runs scored, 31 doubles, 5 triples, 12 home runs, 48 RBIs, he led the league with 29 stolen bases, his 11 times caught, that also led the National League that year, 74 walks, only 36 strikeouts, most impressive. Finished his rookie campaign with a 297, 427, 810 slash, an 810 OPS, and a 112 OPS plus. 252 total bases. He finished fifth in NL MVP voting, and he was the first winner of the National League Rookie of the Year, beating out 21 game winner pitcher Larry Jensen of the rival Giants. And by the end of the season, Dixie Walker is forced to admit that uh, Robinson is, in fact, everything that Branch Rickey said he would be when he came up from Montreal. 
So, the integrated, the integration of the game, it continues on without much critical incident. Jackie was still scored by teammates and opponents. Bench jockey still rode him like a Kentucky Derby Colt. And hateful pitchers continued to uh, buzz Robinson's tower with a steady dot of fastballs. Uh, even when Cards outfielder Enos Slaughter appeared to deliberately maim Jackie with a spice, Jackie did not retaliate. He kept his word to Mr. Ricky. He's an officer and a gentleman. And the great experiment, it was a huge success. Despite some of these uh, fools still holding on to the Civil War. Yeah, integration proved to be a financial boom for the Dodgers as they set uh, new records for attendance at Evans Field. And they broke single-game attendance records in every single NL ballpark that year, with the exception of Crossley Field in Cincinnati. By the year's end, Jackie is runner-up to only Bing Crosby as the most recognizable person in America. Before the 1948 season got underway... The Dodgers shipped Eddie Stanky to the Boston Braves, opening the door for Robinson to take second base. Unfortunately, uh, Jackie showed up to camp out of shape, and his spot at second was on hold till you know he got his shit together. Um, eventually, he would take over at second, and Gil Hodges would emerge emerge at first. The season saw him drop to third and sometimes fourth in the Dodgers lineup. And he did lead the third place team with 85 RBIs while batting 296. With Robinson back in the middle of the lineup, uh, back in the middle of the diamond, Robinson led all NL second basemen's and fielding percentage. In 1949, Jackie had his best MLB year. And he earned MVP honors in the National League by establishing career highs in games, hits, average, slug, ribs, and stolen bases. All the while leading the Dodgers to the pennant by a slim one-game margin. Jackie won the batting title with a 3.42 average. And he stole the league-high 37 bags, which was the highest NL total in 19 years. Jackie enjoyed two more stellar years. In 1950 and 1951, he batted 3.28, 3.38, respectively. Both years, the Dodgers lost the pennant on the last day of the season. Although, Jackie's heroics... Did keep them in the hunt till the bitter end. In 1951, his spectacular diving catch versus Filthy and a game-winning 14th inning blast in that season finale had set the stage and it forced the playoff that would eventually be decided by Bobby Thompson and the shot heard round the world. In 1942, Robinson is compiling numbers. And as a result, the Dodgers rebound back to the top of the NL standings he hits 308, scores 104 runs, belts 19 home runs, and he played a fantastic second base. In 1953, the now 34-year-old veteran, he moves to another position to make room for hotshot rookie Jim Gilliam. Uh, he plays 76 games in the outfield, 44 games at third, nine times at second, six games at first, and he even played shortstop for a game, marking the only time he ever played his original position in the majors. He hit 339, drove in 95 runs, scored 109, uh, scored 109, drove in 95 runs, scored 109 times. Uh, Gilliam filled the leadoff stick void that the Dodgers desperately needed, and he won the NL Rookie of the Year honors that year. The 1954 season was Jackie's last dominant season. Shuffling between third base and the outfield, he batted 311, but the age and the injuries were finally catching up to Jackie. In 1955, the year the Dodgers captured their first world title, it was actually Robinson's worst season statistically. He appeared in fewer than 100 games that year, and he batted only 256. And during the Dodgers' epic World Series victory over the Yankees, Robinson played third base in six of those seven games. Even though his bat was ice cold, Jackie scored five times in the series, including his shocking Game 1 steal of home plate that had Yogi Berra uh, howling to the moon till his last breath on this planet. Jackie would rally to hit 275 in his 19 and 1956, his final NBC, MLB season. And though he was but a mere shadow of his once world-class athlete self, 
Jackie proved to still be a formidable bat on some days, and the wheels could still create havoc on the base path. Uh, The Dodgers would again lose to their AL nemesis, New York Yankees, in the World Series, but Jackie did show up. He drew five walks in the series, hit a home run, five runs scored, and his last professional at bat, Jackie Robinson strikes out, but fittingly, he doesn't go down quietly without a fight. Yankees pitcher Yoke, or Yankees catcher Yogi Berra was forced to throw to first for the two to three put out after dropping the third strike. Jackie's last year with the Dodgers was less than ideal. He disliked uh, manager Walt Austin and he soured on owner Walter O'Malley when he forced Mr. Ricky out the front office in 1950. And though Brooklyn had captured the 1956 NL pennant, the once dominating nucleus, it was getting old. Robinson himself was not the same player. He began to overcome, uh, he began increasingly to become more outspoken on racial issues, both inside and outside of baseball. And the Dodgers were hoping that Jackie would walk away gracefully. But Robinson made it clear he had no intentions of announcing his retirement. And finally, the Dodgers... They forced his hand by dealing him to those damn Giants on December 13th, 1956 for journeyman hurler Dick Littlefield and $30,000 in cash. And just to give you some perspective, that thirty grand the Dodgers received from the Giants in 1957 and has the purchasing power of around $317,000 in the 2023 economy. On January 22nd, 1967, Jackie retires from baseball in an exclusive interview with Look Magazine. Though his career was over, he wasn't ready to leave the spotlight entirely. He joined the Chock Full of Nuts Coffee Company as the vice president. He also served as the chairman of the Board of Freedom National Banks, which was founded to provide loans and banking services uh, for minority members who were largely ignored by these establishment banks. He authored several autobiographical projects. He wrote a weekly newspaper column, hosted a radio show, and he even tried a little acting starring in the Jackie Robinson story. And Jackie remained in an unofficial capacity, a powerful spokesman for blacks in America, and a relentless civil rights crusader. In 1962, Robin was elected into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, along with Cleveland pitcher, pitching great Bob Feller. You know, the same dude who, who said, you know, Jackie would never be able to hit the uh, inside fastball because he had football shoulders. <laughs> Guess who you're going into the hall with, buddy? A few years after his retirement, Jackie acknowledged his battle with diabetes, his body was ravaged now by the disease, and at the age of 53, he suffered a fatal heart attack at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. He died on October 16, 1972, just months after his number 42 was officially retired by the team for uh, posterity. And his last public appearance was at the 1972 All-Star Game where he says, basically, his dream is to see a blackface managing from a dugout in a Major League Baseball game. And unfortunately, he died before seeing Frank Robinson take over the helm for Cleveland as a player manager in 1975. And that's the clip that you heard at the top of the show. That was his last public appearance. And side note here, there's evidence that Jackie may have been the first insulin-dependent diabetic to ever play Major League Baseball, Uh, even though Robinson always denied it. And former tennis great Bill Talbert, a close friend of Jack, who was the first famous athlete known to perform with diabetes, he believed Jackie became insulin-dependent midway through his Dodgers career. And Bill recalled how his prideful friend believed it would be viewed as a weakness and it could stain the optics of having blacks play in the majors. Just another thing to hold us against us, Jack once told his friend. More than 2,000 people packed Riverside Church on Manhattan's Upper West Side to hear the young Reverend Jesse Jackson deliver Jack's eulogy. 
Literally tens of thousands of onlookers, they lined the streets of Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant to get just a glimpse of the sedan their hero was lying in. The uh, procession was over a mile long, and Robinson is buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, alongside his mother-in-law and his son, Jack Robinson Jr. His wife, Rachel, his rock, his muse, his better half, still as beautiful as ever. She just celebrated her 100th birthday this past, I believe it was June. And she is still this precious commodity in our baseball conscience. And now, with Vince Scully gone, Rachel truly is our last link to Jackie Robinson. Again, today's show uh, release date is January 31st, 2023. Which means today, exactly 104 years ago, the son of a sharecropper and the grandson of a slave was born in Cairo, Georgia. He lived in abject poverty and he was considered a second class citizen. So remember, it's not where you start, folks. It's where you finish. If the second class citizen in 1919 can change the world, imagine what you can do. Nothing is impossible. So, look, CMEDS, I think that's what I'm going to call it. It would be impossible to cover the legacy of Jackie in an hour, an hour and a half, two, three hours. But I feel like I gave you a nice little template template base to start out with. And by all means, I implore you to learn more about Jackie, a true American patriot. And there are, of course, all kinds of stuff that you can do your research on. Uh, All kinds of things that you can do. YouTube, articles, books. The memory of Jackie Robinson is still very much alive in the 21st century. I, I, I do appreciate that. And as seamens who care about this game, we should do our damnedest to keep it that way. Hopefully, 100 years from now, someone else does a Jackie Robinson podcast show uh, for his 200th birthday or whatever the new broadcasting tech of the day is. But I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure these history deniers running around this country They're not going to sully the name of Jackie Robinson on my watch. And I just think it's very important that we preserve this history right here and pass it on down to seam heads of the future. So, look, I really had fun doing this week's show. Let's dig into these Jackie Robinson career stats. 11-year Major League career, all with the Brooklyn Dodgers, born January 31st, 1919. So, this pod is being dropped on his 104th birthday. Happy birthday, Jackie. You motivate me to get back up. Every time I've been knocked down, I examine your life, and I know nothing, nothing is impossible. 63.8 war, 5,941 plate appearances, 972 runs. 1,563 hits, 286 doubles, 55 triples, 141 dongs, 761 ribs to go with those dongs as a side dish, 200 stolen bases, 70 times caught, and check this out. Here's my favorite Jackie Robinson stat. Where's it at here? I just freaking had it. 756 walks and only... 291 strikeouts. 756 walks and only 291 strikeouts. His most strikeouts in the season. 40 in 1952. He had 636 plate appearances that year, folks. He only struck out 40 times. I doubt Jack ever worried about his launch angle. I'll tell you that right now. 2,382 total bases. He finished with a 313, 410, 477 slash. 887 OPS and a 133 OPS plus. 1947 Rookie of the Year. 
1949 NL MVP, seven-time NL All-Star. He was uh, elected into the Hall of Fame in 1962 by the writers with uh, 77.5% of the vote. That's just fucking piss-poor pathetic as far as I'm concerned. You gotta be kidding me. 77%? He just barely made the cut. That's ridiculous. In 1987, 40 years after Jackie changed the course of America, the Rookie of the Year Award is renamed the Jackie Robinson Award in his honor. Ten years later, on the 50th anniversary, the number 42 becomes the first and only number to be universally retired throughout Major League Baseball. So, yeah, what a life, man. What a legacy. You can find me on a few social media sites around town. I love bantering with my fans. On Twitter, we're at back underscore K underscore podcast. You can find us on YouTube and Instagram, backwards K pod. But if someone wants to put a hit out on me, I'm real easy to find. You can, I'm always hanging out on the Let's Talk a Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. And I'm sitting on a few things right now, folks. Playing it close to the vet. Best uh, could be. I'm just saying, could be another podcast creation coming soon. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, keeping it out for more details. Uh, so, look, I really enjoyed this week's show, and with that amazing Jackie Robinson bio, nicely folded, tucked away, and my uh, collection of ball players. Uh, where's my goddamn sword at? I chop. The head of our baseball hydra, only to see two more topics grow back in its place. Next week, we will be taking a look at the life and times of the quiz. The Kansas City's Royals dominant closer from the 1980s, Don Quisenberry. And for a type A alpha male competitor, that quiz was. There probably wasn't a kinder, more caring human to ever play the game. This guy right here. Wow, I, I can't wait to get after it next week. Just a real good dude who left us who left us way too young. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. I do accept free donations of five star reviews and well written accounts. About all my superlatives, hook a good brother up. Happy birthday to Ernie Banks and Jackie Robinson today, January 31st, 2023. Hey, check that out. The last two shows at BKP, they, they share a birthday today. Look, I done told you many times, I do what I do, what I do, and I do it better than anyone else. I'm well thought out and prepared, if I'm anything. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, Looking bored AF. By all means, take those little rugrats out. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless. Win the day. And I concur with my boy, Shea Hillebrand, when he said in our one-on-one interview, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace. Thank you.